All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Iowa Summer Writing Festival 11th Hour Series. Um, I can see that today we have some people from the Young Writers Studio here with us, so welcome. Hope you enjoy the talk today. Um, those of you who have been coming to these a lot realize that I am not Margaret. I am Alex. I am the Summer festival intern for the week-long portion of the festival, so you can still buy printer cards from me if you need them. Um, today's talk is from Tim Bascom. Tim Bascom is the author of the memoir Running to the Fire, which is about coming of age as the son of missionaries in Ethiopia during a Marxist revolution. His earlier memoir, Chameleon Days, won the Bakeless Literary Prize. He is also the author of a collection of essays and a novel. His writing has won editor's prizes at the Missouri Review and Florida Review and have been, and been anthologized in Best Creative Nonfiction and Best American Travel Writing. Bascom, who received his MFA from the University of Iowa Nonfiction Program, is Director of Creative Writing at Waldorf University. Today, Tim will discuss tried and true habits for practicing writers who have refused to quit with his talk today, Why Not Quit? Tips for Becoming a Durable Writer. Welcome, Tim. I think I'm on. Are you hearing me? S sounds okay for everybody? Yeah? Okay. Good to be with you all. Uh, I had fun with Alex being in my workshop over the weekend and really appreciated the work that she was doing. It's kind of fun to have her get to be the introducer. One year here, when I was teaching at the Iowa Summer Writing Festival, I met a designer who was from Denmark who was taking a class with me. And he got all excited because I was trying to describe what it was like to be a writer. And this was new to him. He had worked a lot with physical design. And he said the design process uh, is uh, very interesting. And I'd like to draw you a picture of it. So he uh, went ahead and drew us a picture. And this is it simplified for you. So if you're wondering how to do it, this is how it's done, all right? Uh, it's a messy journey, like Moses wandering in the desert, basically. Years and years of feeling lost, of not arriving. Maybe some of you can relate to Moses with his crew, trying to find where they're going as well. Such a journey is easily abandoned, especially when you throw in the attempt to get published which is not an easy thing to do. Callie Van Bale, who also teaches here in the Summer Writing Festival, uh, worked for years to get an agent for a book that she had written and felt good about, but for years wasn't able to get the agent. Finally, she got one. A week later, the agent quit and became a beekeeper. <laughs> so... This is the kind of fun that you can expect if you endure and keep going. Mary Allen, who some of you may have heard yesterday, uh, wrote a fine article um, that was in Poets and Writers magazine recently. And she was on a retreat with her friend, Joanne Beard, a person who also studied here at the University of Iowa. Uh, Mary had been working on her second book, a memoir, and she'd been working on it for 15 years. And while they were on retreat together, uh, she got the rejection letter from another agent. 
And this hurt a lot, but what was difficult for her was that she felt a loss of faith, basically, at that point. And in the article she says, even as I think about the future, about what to do next, I can feel the faith trickling out of me like air leaking out of a balloon. She describes in that article hiking a desert trail with Joanne Beard, just uh, as an outing during their retreat together. The whole time she was worried that she was riding her way off track, wandering, never likely to arrive. I've had my own share of frustration as well. My first book, a novel, and I'll give you a picture of it here, uh, was rejected 48 times before somebody finally said yes. And uh, the, the editor who finally said yes was in the Philippines. It was set in the Philippines, and I had tried over and over here in the States to find a publisher, and finally that publisher at a little press there called New Day, which I have a lot of respect for, um, they said, yeah, we'll take it. And that was the only way to finally get that book into print. But I remember during those rejections coming in and coming in, being so angry that I was pounding on the dashboard in Chicago when I was commuting with my wife at one point and her wanting me to calm down um, because I probably looked a lot like I was in road rage. <laughs> Even since then, it has become just routine for me to receive rejections on anything that I send out. And when I send out an essay or a story or a poem, I just expect to be rejected at least 10 times, often 20, sometimes more. So I'm just telling you, it is part of this life. It is for me. Of course, I'm not Stephen King. I would be lying if I did not admit that sometimes I feel the urge to simply quit, either due to the despondence that is born out of this feeling of me maybe being second rate, just not having it, not being able to get published, or out of a kind of peevish spite that makes me want to tell all those editors out there, screw you. Joanne Beard a very successful graduate from here in the MFA program also has felt that desire to quit. She, in another interview, um, had this to say, I did give up at one point when I just couldn't get anything published anywhere. It was a half-hearted giving up because I thought the publishing world wrong and me right. This is the artist's way. Nevertheless, it was a form of quitting. However, in the middle of this despair that she was experiencing, she realized something. I cared so profoundly about literature and writing that even the argument I was having with the publishing world was compelling to me. Even not being published had the word published in it. <laughs> and so I felt like I had a corner of the blanket, so to speak. Then in 1996, she got published in The New Yorker with that remarkable essay called The Fourth State of Matter, which you should read if you haven't. And uh, she's done well since, though I bet if we had her here, she would talk about rejection still as well. The practicing writer has to have a certain degree of stubborn resilience. The practicing writer, the one that keeps going, just has to keep going, has to have resilience. 
I recently published a poem that I wrote originally in 1991, which is, you know, 25 years ago or so. Paradoxically, it is about the very thing we are discussing, which is endurance. It's titled July 5th, Lake Michigan, Chicago. The fish in the shallows are insubstantial with see-through bodies and peppercorn eyes, lighter than the lures the fishermen flick from their long black rods singing out across the water to settle and sink. Burnt and booted, these men wait deep into the day, bound by something stronger than the flash of festivity which brought yesterday's crowd briefly interested, with the help of fireworks, parachutists, and a screeching band, then gone, leaving the lake for those more willing to wait. They squint against the glare, red-skinned, not bothering to reel in their lines until they sense something worth keeping. The poem originally was called Senec Lake, Czech Republic. <laughs> the only thing I changed after multiple revisions over the years, finally, was the title. I said, if those editors will not take it as an expression of some people in another culture who on their Independence Day, after the fall of the Iron Curtain, if they will not take it on, those ba on that basis, then I'll transport it to Chicago a place I have lived, and I will put it the day after July 4th, because it still says the same thing. And then it was taken. Just an example of how over time something can still work out. Hannah Tinty, who is the author of the bestseller The Good Thief, anybody read that book? No? I think worth taking a look at. She says, you often don't enjoy the fruits of your labor, so enjoy the labor. I agree, and I would say, remember that the design process requires wandering. It requires it. That is true. That picture of the wandering is the way it is. We think we're going here, and then, oh, wait a minute. No, no, no. Oh, hell, what am I doing? Um, but we have to wander to finally get where we are trying to go. And I, I wish, uh, maybe there are some people more brilliant um, who don't do as much of it, but in my case, I, I, I've always had to muddle to finally get where I'm going. So that means that as you're muddling and you think suddenly, I'm going the wrong direction, you are actually getting closer to your goal, right? In some sense. If this is a long journey, then the writer must train for a long journey. The key thing is commitment to regular writing. Some of you may have a time of day when that occurs. For uh, my predecessor in the position where I teach at a little college, uh, Waldorf University, Joe Wilkins used to get up early in the morning. Susie will agree, right? A colleague from there. And uh, he would work. Uh, very, in a very religious, dedicated way, early in the morning. I can't do that. I hate mornings. So for me, evenings, often very late, and weekends. But uh, I have to have some way that I can pack it in and get the work done. Callie Van, Van Bale says, 
that she believes writing time is particularly hard for women. And she says that as a mother and a working woman, she had to learn not to, quote, find time. Instead, she had to take time um, because of the dynamic that she experienced in her family as a woman. And that meant asserting that this time was non-negotiable, even to the family itself. It might surprise you, but I believe at least, and I think a lot of people do, that the most important factor for this resilience that you would want to develop is community. Because we think of writers as individuals who are very isolated, working by themselves. And it takes that, a lot of lone time. But in fact, you need community. Chris Jones, who works up at the Literary Loft in the Twin Cities, just came out with a book on 11 debut authors who had just come out with their first book, and he interviewed all of them. <clears throat> and he found the commonality between all of them was that they said what kept them going was what they called connections in their community, that they had others that they could turn to and rely on. Hannah Tinty says that of her own writing community. She says, it's like a group of mountaineers who tie themselves together. If you fall off the mountain, they catch you and pull you back up. Wait a minute, that's not who I thought I was going to. <laughs> How did we get there? All right, let's look at that. So stay tied together, basically, right? By doing this talk, I'm getting a form of community affirmation, and I appreciate that. Just by getting to do this, I have a reminder that I'm not alone, and I hope you're getting a reminder, too, you're not alone, that there are others crazy as you, and that it's valid. It's valid to be that kind of person. Writing groups um, offer that kind of affirmation as well, so finding one or forming one is an important part of being a writer, I think. Sorry. Here is a cartoon that I couldn't resist throwing in as we make our desert journey. But here is a group that I have belonged to. Um, when I was doing my work here in the nonfiction writing program, I helped form a group of writers, and they are still meeting. So it's been over 15 years, and a couple of them and I, Cecile is one who teaches here in the Summer Writing Festival, got together just last night. Um, and that's a photo from last night. By the way, you should go and eat at Tabula over in Coralville at some time. Uh, work, work that into your visit. Get over there, because they have really good food. It's Mediterranean cuisine in a buffet style. Um, but we ate there, and we, we always uh, eat at some restaurant that is a um, cultural experience to jump over to because we started as a travel writing group. We define that very loosely. We're all on a journey, right? Um, so uh, we still tend to meet at a place like that and spend time together. And that's meant a lot to me, again, to have that group. Um, a literary friendship? is important, and that's a little different than a group. Is there somebody like Joanne Beard and Mary Allen get together every year, I think? That's what I'm picking up. Um, do you have somebody like that uh, that you know is sharing this journey? Some of those friends, I know couples, basically, pairs of writers who will meet once a week, and they just write. 
they have that agreement. So if this is important, let's just sit down together and we'll just write. We won't even talk. At the very end, we'll say, hey, that was fun. No, they'll, they'll talk a little bit. But, but they're sharing this friendship around writing itself. Um, for me, that uh, has taken the form of a friend up in Canada. And uh, I get together with him when I can, Daniel Coleman. I'm very fortunate because he uh, was my grade school friend in second grade in a boarding school in Ethiopia. And he's a writer today and has published several books. And so we've had this lifelong journey together. And we were, we were able to just see each other in April. And that was a reminder again, I'm a writer, he's a writer, we do this thing, let's keep going. So finding a friend that you can link up with regularly is very important. Doggedness is necessary because the obstacles will arise. There's going to be literary hills and mud and there's going to be blisters. Uh, realize that revision is going to help you to get where you want to go. It's part of that messy design process, even if it seems backward. With Chameleon Days, the first of the two memoirs that Alex mentioned, I had to cut 100 pages of the book right at the tail end, and that was very hard to do. But I think it made it a better book. The editor had to talk me into it, but I do think, in retrospect, it made it a better book. With Running to the Fire, the later of the two books, I had to cut 100 pages, but I also had to write 100 pages and add those in. And I didn't want to do that. And that was in interaction with an editor. The editor uh, was pushing me, saying, um, this, is, this narrative that you've told works for us. It's about returning to Ethiopia as a 16-year-old in the middle of a Marxist revolution. My parents being Christian missionaries, which meant they were basically pitted against the forces at work in the society at the time. And um, the editor said, we like the narrative, but it's not a memoir. And I said, it's not a memoir. Come on. I know what a memoir is. I write them. Well, they said, where is the retrospective glance of the older self who is making sense of what occurred? And I was like, that's a lot of material. <laughs> and then... Part of me, as I started writing on it, giving more cultural background, talking more about Marxism, looking at figures like David Livingston, the earliest missionary in Africa, to be really noticed, um, I started realizing this is what I wanted to do. I just was afraid to do it. Why was I afraid to do it? Because my parents would read the book. And they would say, you hold those views? We thought it was clear-cut. They were the bad guys. We were the good guys. Um, so I was going to have to go ahead and confront that to write it the way that I did. And the editor was forcing me into that position, and I believe it became a better book through the revision, which was part of this wandering that I had to do. Make sense? Um, I'll just read you a passage from it that is material that got added in to the narrative of this boy who's suddenly uh, dealing with checkpoints and being pulled off a bus with a machine gun and um, living in a very remote village in the mountains of Ethiopia 
uh, with Kabbali leaders who come to check in and want to know everything that we're doing. It can be difficult to think about the past through the lens of the present, like crossing your eyes and seeing double. When you are 5 or 10 or even 15, the world is not refracted like that, bent through all the accumulated layers of history. Everything is right there in front of you and wonderfully straightforward, sharply defined even to the point of pain, but not that complicated. Which is why the first time I wrote this book, it was a pleasure to go back to an early, simple way of seeing, allowing myself to be a teenager again. I didn't want to step away and introduce the prism of retrospection like I'm doing here, which forces me to look at the most vivid moments of my life through a sort of befuddling bifocal or trifocal. Here's the thing. Everything has a context, if not a hundred contexts. We just don't realize that when we are younger. At least I didn't. In 1977, as my parents started talking about taking us into a Marxist revolution, I couldn't see beyond the singular notion that Karl Marx was a bad guy with a big beard. Bad, I say, because he was an atheist, which you couldn't trump for badness, since it was a rejection of the most fundamental truth my family claimed. Since I associated Marx with the Soviets in Northern Europe, who were still a very real political power, I had no idea who Marx actually was. I had no idea that he had died long before the Russian Revolution, even before my grandfather was born, or that he had worked as a journalist in London, which went against my assumption that he ran around with a rifle leading rebel charges. Here, though, is what I know now. In 1867, Karl Marx published the first volume of Das Kapital, and began writing quietly on the second and third volumes, no doubt very aware of the famous British missionary David Livingstone, who was trying to open the interior of Africa. Marx must have known about Livingstone because by then he was already in London, having been thrown out of Belgium and France after publishing his Communist Manifesto. So there he sat, an obsessive researcher in the British Museum Library, taking all his free time to dig through stacks of books about the capitalistic ventures of Europe, while this renowned missionary explorer became the toast of the town, pictured as a true Christian and patriot. It seemed that not only was Dr. Livingstone risking everything to learn about the headwaters of the Nile, but he was doing it kindly, with a small crew of porters, befriending natives, sending back impassioned pleas for England to get involved immediately so as to stop the cruelties of the Arab slave trade. Marx was still there in London, watching as newspapers reported Livingstone's legendary death and as the body was brought back from Zanzibar to Westminster Abbey. He was still at the heart of the empire, working on the same economic theories, probably with not a clue how profoundly those theories would reconfigure the world map. And I wonder, what was he thinking as he heard this Christian hero lionized? What exactly was going through his mind as English politicians and businessmen began to imagine a new set of untapped resources that might be more lucrative than the ones in familiar Asia and the Middle East? What did he mutter as those colonists speculated about English commerce and civilization in Africa, the possibility of vast farms 
and mining operations, not to mention whole tribes of savages turned to proper moral conduct. That's just an example of stuff that came out of the wandering, came out of the editorial feedback that I got. In creative nonfiction, it's particularly good to write about what you're avoiding. I don't know if some of you write creative nonfiction, but I've learned that principle, and I think this is an example of it. And it's part of the wandering, because we tend to push it off. So, you know, I would, I would encourage you to think, what am I avoiding, and go to it. A little, maybe I would do a little less wandering in the process. Yes, I lamented that some of the chapters were pruned because of this. Um, but they were not wasted as part of the process. In fact, it's interesting that I have been able to publish four chapters that were thrown out of the book um, as standalone pieces separate from the book. Uh, one went to Christian nonfiction, uh, to Creative Nonfiction Magazine um, called My First Baptist Winter. And uh, another one to a journal that's a fine one here in the region called Briarcliff Review, um, called My Mystical Body. And it was eventually actually selected for a prize, or as a notable for that prize. Um, so not wasted, even though I thought I was completely losing it. Just for fun, I'll read you a paragraph or two from this piece. Uh, which is about baptism in an evangelical family. Having come back to Troy, Kansas, anybody been to Troy, Kansas? Ah, good. We'll have to talk after. Um, no one goes to Troy, Kansas. It's near, it's near St. Joseph, Missouri. Um, finally, the time came for us to go up through the doors at the side of the front platform, and I realized I was quaking my brother Nat looked anxious too. He didn't say a word as he donned a white robe next to me, getting tangled while trying to find the holes for his arms and head. When he popped out again and looked over at the two adults who were gearing up, his eyes went large. The fact that older people were getting baptized too made the whole event even more momentous. The five of us formed a line at the entrance to the baptismal pool, two adults, then Terry, then myself and Nat. Pastor Leroy waded down the steps, disappearing up to his waist. He took a position just behind the curtain that opened into the sanctuary. And after he had peeked through the crack, he pulled the cord that opened it up, letting light stream in on him, glimmering on the water. Rock of ages, cleft for me, the congregation sang. Let me hide myself in thee. Their voices swung back and forth, holding on to the long notes. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which float be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. The first person into the pool, a heavy 40-year-old woman, came back dripping, then followed a big 50-year-old farmer named Junior, just Junior, <laughs> easing himself carefully down the handrail and sinking into the pool. Junior was a quiet bachelor who for some reason sang in the choir. His singing had always been an enigma to me. It couldn't be due to his love of words, for he never said a word to people unless asked. 
It couldn't be due to his love of expressing himself because I had never seen him look excited or angry or sad or anything but his own steady, calm self. But the most odd aspect of his singing was that he was so clearly ungifted. <laughs> Every time the choir presented a special anthem during the collection or just after the sermon, there would be a moment when the music decrescendoed. The rest of the choir knew to pull back, but Junior, who sang at the same volume always, became painfully noticeable, his notes bent off key, warping the collective sound. I usually looked around at such moments expecting someone to grimace or wink, but I seemed to be the only one paying attention. Here I was, only 13, and surrounded by people who should know more about music than me. Could it be true that I was the only one who realized how completely this man was ruining the song? Shouldn't someone tell him, at least in a tactful way? Anyway, that, that material, you can see even hearing it, that it didn't maybe belong in a book about going to Ethiopia during a revolution. I wanted it to and was trying to jam it in. And it was from that middle period when we were back in the States. And it was an important part of my life. I wanted it to fit. I just couldn't make it. And so I finally had to yank it out. And that was a very hard yanking. You know, it's a wrenching. And so it's satisfying then to also see that it eventually ended up in print in another form. We learn to keep moving and to do it at a patient pace. An essay or story can take years to find its groove, to get accepted by an editor. A book takes even more time. For me, seven years is the quickest I've ever done it. So you work on multiple projects, rotating them. You always have something that you're developing. That way, there is always another option, and there is always hope, right? Yeah, that got rejected, but I am currently working on a book that began 10 years ago, and I thought last summer I had the thing nailed down and the agents were going to all sing when I sent it, and they haven't. I've heard nothing coming back um, in response except a couple of polite notes, and here I am a year later still trying to find an agent for that book. I haven't stopped moving, though. At Christmas time, I let go of 100 pages. It's becoming a pattern for me. That was to get a more playful, fun tone in the book. I let go of some stuff that was just too serious, I thought. Kathleen, my wife, has helped me as well. She's a terrific reader, and she's helped me to see what the book's about. It's about fathers and sons and their dynamic. And she said, you know, I think the book's about affection. It's about how the fathers and sons have affection and what form that takes. So I've taken that to heart and been thinking more, well, how can I illustrate it in what I develop as a book? Hannah Tinty insists that it's not the best writers who make it, it's the ones who just don't give up. The reader's not going to see the chaos of the journey. This is what you went through, right? The reader's going to see this. If it's a narrative, they're going to see that carefully constructed, meaningful rendition of your experience, whether it's in a poem or in a story. They may see this, which is another meaningful rendition of your experience, if you're writing in a reflective fashion, creative nonfiction, circling the subject, seeing it from different angles. They're not going to know what you went through to get where you are. 
But you're going to know, and you're going to relish the accomplishment. And like an explorer who finally makes it across the rainforest, or a spelunker who masters that maze of tunnels, you're going to be, you know, chuffed is the English term, um, pleased with what you've done. All the twists and turns were part of the final arrival. I'm going to admit there are things that do feel like they got wasted. I've got three books in drawers that have never seen the light of day. But in this model, those are part of me getting to where I did get. And they have helped me to write better on what I'm trying to now do. So the last thing is this. Don't forget to celebrate which is kind of hard to do sometimes um, because it means kind of drawing attention to the self and we don't like to do that. Some of us do. Uh, it's a conflicted thing, right? But other, others aren't necessarily going to play that trumpet sometimes and it's a quiet endeavor to be published. So um, let people know and celebrate it uh, that you have arrived and that means getting published anywhere, anywhere celebrate it because it's not easy to get published right and even if you were to do a reading that's a form of publication so celebrate it because some people received what you had to offer it's not something to be shy about thank you it's been fun to be with y'all